Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, day 89 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borsal Dan here with Arab Affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani and culture editor and fellow Daily Briefing host Jessica Steinberg. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. We'll begin with updating you on the targeted killing of Hamas's deputy leader abroad, Saleh al-Aruri. Who was he? What are the reactions to his assassination? Jessica is here and will speak about her recent tour of the decimated kibbutz Be'eri, guided by Yuval Haran, whose extended family was murdered and taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. We'll also hear about a slew of artistic efforts aimed at maintaining awareness of the hostages in Gaza. All this and much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet. But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Saleh al-Aruri was killed Tuesday evening in an alleged Israeli drone strike in the Beirut suburb of Daye, according to Hamas and Hezbollah officials. Israel has not commented yet on the attack, but has vowed in the past to target all leaders of Hamas after the terror group's devastating October 7th attacks. If Israel is indeed behind the attack, it could mark an escalation in the regional conflict. Hamas confirmed that seven people in total were killed in the explosion. It was a precision strike on a third floor apartment that is said to serve as an office for the terror group. The deputy leader of Hamas abroad, Aruri, was also seen as the group's prime orchestrator of West Bank terrorism. So, Luca, tell us more about Aruri. Hi. So, Aruri is from a small village called Arura, north of Ramallah in the West Bank. He uh, was one of the founders of um, Hamas in the West Bank in the 90s. We know that Hamas originally was born in uh, Gaza and then was later exported to the rest of the Palestinian territories. He was arrested by Israel for the first time in 92, and then he spent um, um, a few years in prison until he was finally released in 2010. And then from there, he moved first to Syria and then to Turkey, where he set up uh, the Hamas political bureau there. And we know that throughout this time, he was active in um, uh, basically supporting and um, uh, transferring money and weapons to Hamas in the West Bank. He was, while he was in Turkey, he was elected deputy leader of uh, Hamas. And he later, uh, in 2016, moved to Lebanon. 
where he was responsible for the building and entrenching of, of uh, Hamas in Lebanon and for relations with um, Hezbollah, which is a Lebanese group, and the Iranian officials there. He gave inflammatory speeches where he called for escalations against uh, soldiers and settlers in the West Bank. He met with Hezbollah leader Nasrallah several times, uh, even before um, October 7th and after, together with Iranian officials and with the leader of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And I mean, it's a very important achievement for Israel because it is going to be very hard to replace. Of course, Israel has not taken credit for the attack. Most Israelis know him as the mastermind behind the 2014 kidnapping and then murder of three Israeli teens in the north, Gilad Sha'ar, Ayel, Yifrach, and Naftali Frankel, which essentially caused a war here in Israel. What do you know about his activities in this particular terrorist attack? Uh, not much. Just that he admitted to it once in Turkey, and he was not aware that it was being filmed, and then the movie was uploaded to YouTube, uh, which he didn't plan. Okay, so we uh, already have mentioned on the podcast in the past that Hamas is, of course, a bureaucracy in addition to a militaristic terrorist organization. And so Saleh al-Arori was essentially part of the bureaucratic side, correct? Yes, I mean, it's very hard to distinguish because uh, technically, yes, he was a um, deputy leader of the Politburo of Hamas, but obviously has been involved in a lot of terrorist activity in the West Bank and is providing uh, weapons to Hamas in the West Bank. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really hard to draw a line. So it's not just Israel, of course, that considered him a terrorist. In 2015, the U.S. Treasury Department designated him as a specially designated global terrorist, offering $5 million for information about him. But that didn't stop him from going around the world. He said in a recent video that he didn't mind being killed because uh, everyone in Gaza, I mean, the civilian population in Gaza are dying as martyrs, and so the Hamas leaders should die as martyrs as well. And he praised Hamas for being such a generous um, organization to allow its leaders to fall uh, in battle. In August, he gave an interview that was really interesting and somewhat perhaps prescient or not, in which he said that the the region is heading towards a huge escalation and an all-out war. I wonder how rare is it for Hamas officials to say something like this? And he anchored his statements in uh, Al-Aqsa, in what was happening on Al-Aqsa at the particular moment. It's actually uh, pretty uncommon. Hamas is actually a pretty provincial uh, organization. It's very much focused on the Palestinian issue. They didn't realize on October 7th that there were going to be like global implications to what they were doing. But this is probably uh, because of the pressure of uh, Iran. They've become a proxy of Iran in recent years. And uh, they were hoping for Hezbollah and other um, terrorist groups uh, supported by Iran to get involved in this war, which didn't really happen to the extent that they were hoping. Uh, so there was probably to be interpreted in that um, context of uh, hoping to get support from from other actors in the region. So as we mentioned, seven were killed in this uh, drone strike and others besides Aruri that were identified as military commanders are Samir Findi and Azam al-Akra. Who are these people? Do you know anything about them? So, uh, as far as we know, um, Samir Findi uh, over some Hamas military activities in Lebanon, uh, including uh, Hamas activities in southern Lebanon, where they fire rockets at, at Israel uh, together with Hezbollah. 
and was also considered uh, the main point of contact with uh, Houthi rebels in uh, Yemen, who were also supported by Iran and Qatar. The second one you mentioned, Azam al-Akra, he uh, was more focused on uh, Hamas uh, in the West Bank, and he uh, reportedly orchestrated terror activities there from overseas. Okay. What are we hearing from Hamas and Hezbollah in the meantime? So uh, Hamas leader uh, Ismail Aniya in uh, Qatar has uh, um, uh, defined the targeted killing as an act of terrorism and said the Hamas would not be deterred and uh, its fighters will keep dying as martyrs, its leader will keep dying as martyrs. And usually we've heard condemnation from a political figure, from the um, Lebanese president, Jan- Najib Binkati, who also condemned uh, Israel, um, although as we know, Israel has not taken responsibility, and said Israel is causing regional escalation. Uh, Iran has called this a cowardly terrorist operation, uh, which shows that Israel is losing the war, apparently. And um, Hezbollah leader um, Nasrallah is actually um, scheduled to deliver a speech today at 6, uh, Beirut time. He was going to deliver it anyway because it's the fourth year, four-year anniversary of the killing of uh, Soleimani, the Iranian general. Um, so he's, for sure he's going to address what happened in Beirut yesterday. All right, Luca, thank you very much for all these updates. And uh, please check out the live blog for more updates as they unfold. We'll say goodbye now, Luca. Thank you. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Jessica, last week you visited Kibbutz Be'eri for the first time, as I understand it, and you had a guided tour with Yuval Haran, who is a Be'eri resident, but was not at the Kibbutz on October 7th when so many members of his family were murdered and taken hostage. Tell us your impressions. Yeah, for sure. So, it's funny, I, I realized when I walked into Be'eri and when I walked into the Be'eri dining hall, actually, at the end of the tour, that I had been there in 2014 when uh, Mati Kaspi, the singer-musician, did a tour of Kibbutzim at the time, which were really under the weight of the war that was taking place then in Gaza. And he was just going around to Kibbutzim and giving them a little bit of life. And, and then to be there all these years later after the destruction and devastation that took place there was it, it was it was hard to take in in a sense so as you mentioned 
Um, I've been in touch with Yuval Haran. So Yuval Haran, just to lay it out, and it's it's complicated. He's a 38 year old son of uh, of uh, of Shalom and Shoshan Haran. He grew up on the kibbutz. His parent, his mother, grew up on the kibbutz. His mother's parents were founders of the kibbutz, and they just died in the last year or two. He happened to have been in a lot at a festival with his wife was not there that weekend. But his entire extended family, or most of it, was on the kibbutz for the holiday weekend. Uh, that meant his sister, who lives up north with her son, with her husband and two kids, they had come down for the weekend. And his aunt and uncle lived down the block, about four houses away from his parents. And on October 7th, his father was killed, his aunt and uncle were killed, his uncle's caregiver was killed. His mother, sister, three-year-old niece, eight-year-old nephew, his aunt and cousin, who were also visiting from Hoda Sharon, they were all taken hostage. His brother-in-law was also taken hostage, separately from his wife and two children. His mother, niece and nephew, uh, aunt and cousin, who's 12 years old, were all released in that week of releases that took place at the end of November. His brother-in-law still remains hostage in Gaza. And that is the push that he is in the midst of right now, like so many families. It's these, it's these levels that are really hard to even uh, sort of conceive of, right? So he's mourning his father. He's mourning his aunt and uncle. His mother and sister and niece and nephew and aunt and cousin are back. And that is a huge relief for him. He literally feels his heart is relieved in a, cer- in, in a huge sense. And they are all together in Herzliya, staying in someone's home. But his brother-in-law is still a hostage. And his brother-in-law, there's been no sign of him, obviously, since the end of November. And Yuval, this guy who was the, he was the IT manager for the, for the kibbutz. He literally knows, knows everyone's passwords, he said. And, you know, we laughed. He literally set everyone's computer passwords in the kibbutz. And Be'eri is a big kibbutz, has about a thousand people living there. Let's just remind our listeners that uh, the brother-in-law is called Tal Shoham. And one thing about Yuval is that uh, while his, the rest of the family was uh, taken hostage and still in captivity, he was one of the leaders of, for example, the massive march that went from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He has been a very active voice throughout. And I can understand the frustration and grief that he must be feeling right now. And so these tours of Be'eri that he's giving to people, including to Seinfeld, correct? To Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yep. It's it's his new push to raise awareness. So what was his overarching message, would you say? His message basically is that of many other families who are in this position, and that is that to keep the issue of the hostages at the top of the list right now, at the top of the priority list. We're on day 89. So Tal Shoham, his brother-in-law, has been in captivity for 89 days, and he was not with the rest of his family. Okay. And like many other people, they were moved around and they don't have any information. And someone like Yuval Haran says about his brother-in-law, Tal Shoham, he's a gentle guy. He's a therapist. He's a, he's an Abba. That is his personality. That is who he is. And he said, and Yuval said very specifically, you know, yes, they keep on saying the men are going to be the last. The men, if they get out, they will be the last ones to get out. And he said, doesn't necessarily mean that every man is strong enough to deal with something like this. Yuval said about himself, I don't think I would be strong enough to withstand 
80-something days in captivity, and I don't really know how Tala's going to be strong enough to do that. And that was really his message, because they have to keep on doing things, finding ways to bring us, to bring the, the listeners and the readers and the reporters back to where they're at, which is keeping this at the top of the list. So it's marches and rallies and doing tours of Be'eri with Seinfeld or Jessica Steinberg or whoever else that will come and do that with them. So Tal Shoham, who is still a hostage, is a relatively young man. He's, I believe... 38. Correct. And as opposed to Amiram Cooper, who is 84. And one of the ways to raise awareness for him was a performance by Ehud Banai this week that you attended in Tel Aviv's Hostages Square. So tell us first of all about Amiram, and then we'll talk about the performance. Sure. So Amiram Cooper is 84 years old. He's from Kibbutz near Oz. He was taken hostage with his wife, Nurit Cooper, on October 7th. Nurit Cooper was released on October 17th with another woman, Yocheved Lifshitz. Uh, it was like the, it was the first hostages release that happened. They, he, Nurit and Amiram, husband and wife of decades, had been kept captive together. And then the next time that the family found out about their father and husband was weeks later and then that November, the week of November releases. They got a little bit more information about him. And then a propaganda video by Hamas was released on December 18th, I believe, that had been made a week earlier, but it featured Amiram Cooper and two other older, elderly men from near Oz. And Amiram Cooper's son, Daron Cooper, who I spoke with the other day, he said when he first saw the the video, he almost didn't recognize his father at first. He's an 84-year-old man. He takes this medication and that medication, and he looks wizened and weak, and his beard has grown thin. in. Very thin, yes. Very thin. And who is Amiram Cooper? He is a founder of Near O's. He grew up in Haifa. He's an economist. He's worked as an economist in the local southern region for most of his life. He's also a poet, which is why Ehud Banai, the musician, was brought into this event. So he's written three books of poems and a book of children's poems. He's a very dedicated Saba, very dedicated grandfather. And Ehud Banai, who is, you know, essentially one of the voices of Israel, of Israeli music, had performed at Nir Oz years ago, about seven, eight years ago. He performed in their garage and their, you know, where all of their tractors are kept. And he came back a year later because he loved it so much. And on one of those visits, he doesn't actually remember which, Amiram Cooper went up to him and gave him an inscribed book of his own poems. And the family reached out to Ehud Banai and said, would you come and do something with us? We're trying to keep, again, the hostages at the forefront here. So here's Hostages Square, which, remember, is the plaza in front of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. It's a big, huge open space, now full of all of these installations created by different people. And there are these cement platforms that usually have sculptures on them. Now they're used as makeshift stages. And there was a bunch of, you know, white plastic chairs set up. A lot of the Near O's people were there, including Nareet Cooper, Amiram's wife, and his three children, and his grandchildren. And Ehud Banai didn't actually play any of his own music. He was volunteering his time. He basically strummed his guitar and read some of Amiram's poems, as well as Micha Shitrit, another pretty well-known musician. He had composed music to one of Amiram's poems, and then he sang one of his own songs. And then some of the grandchildren and children read some of their 
grandfather's poems, which are poems about kibbutz life and poems poems about being a grandparent and poems about his love for his wife, Nurit, and who looked good. She looked good and she looked healthy. She didn't want to speak to me and that was okay. But I spoke to Doron, the, uh, the eldest son, for a while. He happens to live in San Diego. He's an engineer. He's been going back and forth doing all this liaising with, with, um, with U.S. senators and Congress people and coming back to Israel in order to support his family. And they're just trying to do what they can. And of course, this was all this whole Nir Oz setup, which was on, I believe, Monday, uh, was as the Nir Oz community, as many of them were moving from their Elat Hotel, where they've been since October 8th, let's say, to two apartment buildings in, uh, in Kiryat Gat that were new apartment buildings that hadn't been moved into yet and are basically being given as temporary residents for the Nir Oz community. And that was all happening for this community at this one time. And it's, again, it's always this these weird settings. It's like the kibbutz is transplanted into this Tel Aviv moment. Then there's all these Tel Aviv people around. They're walking their dogs. They're walking their kids back and forth from Gan. And there's Ehud Banai standing on the stage. And it makes sense. And yet none of it does, of course. That's how it always feels at every single one of these events. Jessica, I feel like I was there with you. Thank you so much for your descriptions. Sure. Happy to share it. Thanks for listening to today's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This installment was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or other installments, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>